Hello, fellow Rebel Capitals. Hope you're well. I'm right here with my good buddy, Peter Schiff. And boy, oh boy, we've got a lot to talk about, Peter. I mean, we've got Silicon Valley Bank. We've got Credit Suisse. Now it looks like Deutsche Bank having problems. But I want to start off by getting kind of your insider insights as to you know what's going on with the banking system because you had a bank. And not <laughs> only that, but I know you were warning about kind of all the asset side of these banks balance sheets for a long, long time. And now we're kind of see it coming or seeing it come to fruition. So is this just the beginning or has yeah. the Fed fixed the problem? What do you think? Well, thanks George for having me on and I'm happy to join the rebellion here. But um, <laughs> yeah, you know, especially I, and I spoke about this um, on my, my podcast yesterday and I tweeted about it, but I was watching the congressional hearings and there was a Senator there who, you know, Senator Kennedy, who made some good points. And because, you know, Senator Warren and everybody else are like, you know, if we only had more regulation, if we only had, you know, more government, then this wouldn't have happened. Right. When, of course, it's the the all the government intervention is the reason it happened. Uh, but they were talking about the fact that Silicon Valley Bank was just not quite big enough to fall under the the purview of the Fed. And so therefore, the Fed never ran the stress tests on on this bank. And the senator said, well, even if you had run the stress tests, it wouldn't have made a difference because the bank wouldn't have failed yeah. because your stress tests were testing the wrong thing. And I pointed this out and I actually resurrected a tweet that I put out three years ago when the Fed announced the results of these stress tests and the Wall Street Journal and New York Times were lauding them, you know, Banks passed stress tests with flying colors. They aced the stress test. Like, every, nothing to worry about. And I remember when they came out, I looked at the scenarios. And the most extreme scenario that they could envision was one where interest rates went down and inflation went down. And so the value of their collateral actually went up in that environment, right? Because you had a falling interest rate environment. They didn't test at all for a scenario where rates went up or inflation wow. went up. Right? And and so I said, wait a minute, this is ridiculous. They are fighting the last battle. They're looking for an exact repeat of 2008 when rates went down. I said, what's more likely to happen next time is that rates and inflation go up. And let's see if any bank can pass that stress test, because I said none of them can. They would all fail based on the nature of their balance sheets. And I said, I think maybe the reason that the Fed doesn't want to stress test stagflation is because they know none of these banks would pass. And, mm. and, and they didn't. In fact, you know, I went for years talking about the flip side of the mortgage refi boom because everybody kept saying, this is great. Americans are refinancing their mortgages and getting these super low rates. I kept looking at it from the point of view of the lender. Yes, Americans are going to save a lot of money with three, four percent mortgages. But that means the lenders are going to lose a lot of money because what the borrower wins, the lender loses. It's just right. a transfer. Who are the lenders? The banks. They're stuck with all this paper. You know, one of one of the guys that works for me at EPAM, we were just talking, you know, he's one of the portfolio managers. And he said, yeah, I closed on my home loan here in Puerto Rico in March or April of 2020. And he got a 30-year fixed of 2.88. Wow. I'm like, I'm like, whoa, I, I, you know, you're below three. Imagine how much money the bank is going to lose for the next 28 years on that on that mortgage. You know, and, and right now they're not necessarily losing because they haven't had to sell it, but they're still paying nothing 
in uh, in interest on their deposit. So eventually, the bank customers are going to want to withdraw their money because inflation is going to be eroding away the value. So either they're going to withdraw it to put it in a money market or maybe something better like buying gold, right, or sending it to me to manage or something like that. But they're <laughs> going to want to take it out of the bank and the bank doesn't have it because it lost it on 3% mortgages. <laughs> yeah, so right. it's just like Silicon Valley Bank. I mean, all the paper they bought for a dollar was worth 60 cents. And the other irony of it, and you mentioned that I, I'm in a bank or I had a bank, and I know that when you have a bank and you have assets on your balance sheet and the regulators come, if you have loans out to businesses, they don't let you carry that on the books at face value. They make you mark it down. They assign a haircut to it because, mm. you know, what if it defaults or what if something happens to it? But the government said to the banks, if you put your capital in any instrument guaranteed by the U.S. government, no matter the duration, any instrument, we are going to allow that at full value, no haircut, and you never have to market to market. Yeah, the, all like you a have whole to do, maturity account. Yeah, all you have to do is say you're going to hold it to maturity. All right, well, okay. Well, but, but what if you can't hold it to maturity? What if something <laughs> happens where you actually need to sell it? Wait, it's because it's not going to have that value, right? But but they the, the regulators, you know, basically corralled everybody into this because if you did anything else with your capital, they impaired it with, with haircuts and mark-to-market accounting. And so the easiest thing for the banks to do to have a good audit was to throw everything into treasuries and government-backed mortgages. And then the regulators looked at it and said, okay, great, nothing to worry about here. You know, so, and meanwhile, no one cared that the banks were loading up on treasuries at the height of a 20-year bull market that culminated in a mania and a bubble where the yields temporarily on 10-year government bonds were below 1%. Right. <laughs> you know, like people think, oh, U.S. treasuries are safe. Not if you buy with a 1% yield are not safe. Yeah. So yeah. that, you know, so th this whole disaster was so easily predictable I mean, I, I, I was calling for it exactly this way. In fact, for years at my asset management company, we did not own the banks. Why did I not own the banks? Precisely because of what's happening to the banks now. I said that the banks were going to get killed when interest rates went up. And the, the majority of the opinion on Wall Street was like, oh, the banks are going are gonna to do well with higher interest rates because they'll be able to make more money on their loans. And I kept saying, yeah, but what about the loans they've already made that they're stuck with? What about the value of their collateral You know, when interest rates go up? Because they bought it when interest rates was low. And of course, I said, when interest rates go up, a lot of the loans that they made may end up going into default <laughs> when the businesses can't afford to make the payments if they reset. So I talked about all the negatives yep. that would result from rising interest rates when everybody else was ignoring that, including all the regulators, which is why more regulation wouldn't have helped. The only thing that would have helped would have been the complete absence of government regulation. Because if we repealed all the bank regulations, then we might actually have a sound banking system. <laughs> because then banks would compete with each other based on safety and soundness. A bank would say, put your money in my bank because I don't make all these risky loans. We do really prudent things. See, that's what I did with my bank. We didn't make any loans at all. We were a 100% reserve bank. 
right? I was like, we're not going to loan your money out at all. We're not going to take any risk with your money. We're going to keep it all nice and safe. And if we had banks competing, because see, I didn't have any FDIC insurance in my bank. So if you put your money in my bank, you were taking your chances. So you had to do some homework and you had to make sure, well, you know, what's Schiff doing with my money? You know, what kind of stupid things is he, you know, loans are, is he making? Oh, he's not making any loans. Oh, okay. I don't have to worry, right? He's keeping the money, keeping the money safe. But if we didn't have the FDIC and there was some motivation on the part of the banks to play it safe because the customers only wanted to put money in safe banks. And of course, you don't have to be a financier. You don't have to have a degree in finance or accounting to be able to figure out which bank is safe because the safe banks will be able to say, hey, this organization rated me X for safety. You know, they would have some other, uh, you know, prominent people maybe find out where does Warren Buffett keep his money? Which bank is he using? He's pretty smart. Let me just bank where he banks, right? I mean, you know, there'd be ways of doing it, right? I mean, I yeah. buy consumer electronics all the time. I mean, I, I, I don't know how anything works. You know, I, I'm not an engineer or I can't program a computer, but I could buy one. I can shop around, right? Because there's just information out there that I can educate myself. Yeah. So, you know, people can figure out the good banks without- yeah, You know, Peter, I, I actually got into debate with someone, I won't mention their name on, on Twitter spaces regarding this and they were advocating for FDIC and for, I know it's private, but a lot of these, uh, we'll call them regulations and, and backstops that create moral hazard. And that, you know, I'm sure you understand their argument or you've heard their argument many, many times where they're like, well, the average Joe plumber, they, you can't expect them to look at the bank's balance sheet and understand, you know, if they're hedging the assets and doing all of these uh, you know, derivative transactions and whatnot, or, you know, how safe the liability side of their balance sheet is. And I said, look, back in 2012, when I retired, I didn't know what the Fed was. I didn't know anything, but I had to pick a bank locally in Kansas City when I was doing real estate there. So I, one of my buddies played basketball with uh, the VP of commercial lending for one of the small banks. So I got a meeting with him and I just sat down at dinner, just looked him in the eye and said, you know, asked myself, do I trust this guy? And then I asked them how their portfolio uh, held up under the GFC and it looked good. And another example I gave is just what I always go to the Mayo Clinic in Scottsdale whenever I, I have some sort of issue. I don't know anything about doctoring. You know, I don't know anything about hospitals, but I know that the Mayo Clinic is the best. Why? Because it's got that reputation, got that brand. And to your point, I think people do the exact same thing. And another way, another way it could work is the banks would go and purchase private deposit insurance from private insurance companies that would then look into the bank and would base their premiums on their own risk assessment of that bank. Right. And so if the bank was very safe, it could acquire that insurance at a low cost and that it would could pass on to its customers in lower fees or, or higher interest. You know, or conversely, consumers can go and buy insurance in case their bank fails, right? Just like they buy insurance in case they get a car accident or in case they have, uh, you know, uh, the house burns down. They can say, hey, I'm going to open up a bank account. I want to buy an insurance policy in case this bank fails. And that means the insurance companies would probably do risk analysis on all these banks. And they say, which bank do you want to open up an account at? And say, well, I'm going to open up XYZ. Oh, those guys are doing a lot of risk. So you're going to be paying a really high premium if you want to put right. your money there. 
And I say, well, no. I mean, what banks have low premiums? Well, here's this bank. That that's real. It's really cheap because they they you know. So let the insurance companies figure it out and price the risk into the policy. The reason we don't have a market in this is because the government has taken over. The government is doing it all. The government says you don't need any deposit insurance because we got you covered. <laughs> but whenever the government does it, it doesn't do it right. It doesn't price it according to risk. All these banks pay the same uh, amount into the FDIC. Doesn't matter what the hell they do. Um, and, and so it's a horrible system. I mean, socialism doesn't work. So are we surprised that when we socialize the banking system that we have one financial crisis after another? And by the way, what we are now on the cusp of is another financial crisis. Yeah. But so I let's get into that because it, it, everyone knows what's in the rearview mirror. But, every, you know, the mainstream media is saying, well, the Fed solved this problem. And then <laughs> Jerome Powell comes out and says, Peter, don't you worry about it because we've got the tools <laughs> to handle this, but yet every single week they're creating another tool. Well, they only have one tool, and that's inflation. How much do they create? Do they create more inflation or do they create less inflation? But that's all they got. They got a printing press, you know, or you know, our keyboard, whatever. But they can they can print money or they can they can take the money they print out of circulation. That that's their tool. You know, and now they use the printing press to manipulate interest rates, but it's really just inflation. That's that's all they've got. And for years and years and years. They were creating inflation to solve problems, but right. they didn't really solve the problems. They kind of covered them up as they got bigger. But now they've created so much inflation that inflation is the biggest problem. But yeah, so what, their what only solution do you is think we're more in? inflation. What, do you th what inning do you think we're in as far as this current crisis that you see? And do you think that the big problem is the banking crisis? Or do you think there's something even bigger and the, the bank failures are just the first cracks that we're seeing? Well, it's probably the latter. I mean, you know, we've been in extra innings now for a long time. So it's, it's, it's the game really, as far as I'm concerned, is, is, is over. And you, you see that now because there's really nothing that the Fed can do now. There's no way out of this box. They, they've kind of reached the end of the road because they've created so much inflation in order to paper over problems that were much smaller than what they are now because they were allowed to get much bigger you know, during all the years that we, you know, we postponed the pain and allowed the, the problems to, to, to get worse. But now they're damned that they do and they're damned that they don't because they have two choices. They can keep raising rates and maybe go back to quantitative tightening. They're already, they've already gone back to quantitative easing. I don't even know that they can, you know, flip the switch again, but they can keep on pretending they're fighting inflation. They're really not because if they were actually fighting inflation, rates would have to be much higher than 5%. Um, they would have to be high enough to actually encourage savings and discourage consumption. And, and you're not going to get that until your interest rate is significantly north of your inflation rate. And, and we're not even close. And part of the, the way that higher interest rates reduce inflation is through reducing government spending. Because government spending is pure consumption. And if interest rates go way up, the government has to cut spending. And that's what we need. We need higher interest rates to reduce spending. Consumers have to spend less. The government has to spend less. But the government is spending more. The deficits are going up. Uh, and so there's no way to reduce inflation when you're pursuing inflationary uh, fiscal policy. So, But the Fed either can continue to pretend it's going to fight inflation and cause a much worse uh, financial crisis than 2008. Far more banks are going to fail. Lots of money is going to get lost if the Fed keeps fighting inflation. And ironically, and I pointed this out on my last podcast, the rate hikes themselves are not enough to 
bring inflation down, but they're actually enough to push inflation up because higher interest rates are prices and they're just factored into, into the cost structure of every business. So you're a business, you got rent, you got uh, labor, you got raw materials, you got interest rates. That's the, what you pay on the money you borrowed to, to, to acquire your capital. Interest rates are going up, your costs are going up. How do you recoup those costs? You raise your prices, right? So raising interest rates is inflationary in that it pushes up the consumer price index. It also pushes up the cost of home ownership, which is a big part of the consumer price index. And it enables landlords to raise their rents more because their tenants can't afford to buy with higher interest rates. So they have no choice but to pay higher rents. So when interest rates were really rock bottom and you can get a 3% mortgage, landlords were under a lot of competitive pressure not to raise their rates too much. Uh, you know, so all this has changed. Uh, inflation is here to stay. And, and so if the Fed wants to pretend that it's going to bring inflation back down to 2%, then everything is going to crash. Uh, the stock market, the real estate market, the bond market, the government. I mean, it's just going to be bankruptcies all around because everybody is levered up, including the Federal Reserve itself. The Federal Reserve did the same stupid thing as Silicon Valley Bank. What, what do you think is on their balance sheet? Mortgages and government yeah. debt that's now trading at a huge discount, right? It's the yeah. same same portfolio. Yeah, they've got so, deferred assets, though. Yeah, so and <laughs> yeah. they can't they can't hold them to maturity if they're going to do quantitative tightening. They got to sell. But so the Fed can either, you know, maintain the pretense of fighting inflation and the idea that we're ever going to get inflation back down to two percent and everything collapses, or they can continue what they started a couple of weeks ago. They can backstop the banks. They can continue to have a window where the banks can show up with their underwater paper and get new cash, you know, from the Fed. They can even start cutting interest rates uh, to make it easier for those banks to, 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 to stay solvent. If they do that, if they, if they try to bail out the banks and by extension, the economy, and of course the U.S. government, that's the other problem with the inflation fight is that it's, it's causing larger budget deficits because every time the interest rates go up, the net cost to roll over this short-term debt goes up. And so the budget deficits are exploding as the Fed is raising rates. Well, where is the government going to get the money to service the higher debt? Well, from the Fed, ultimately, because the Fed's going to have to print it. So the more, the higher or, or the longer the Fed keeps rates high to fight inflation, the more inflation it's forced to create to subsidize the government's ability to, to, to make those payments. On, on, on its debt. So it's impossible to fight yeah. inflation. But when, when it stops or the world figures it out, that's when you have the dollar crash. That's when everything implodes. That's when commodity prices go through the roof. Uh, and, and, and that's the end of it. That's the end game. That's, you know, dollar loses its reserve currency status uh, because it's, it's just in free fall. You know, the, the reason it's not in free fall now is because people still believe that the Fed's got this under control that the dollar is not going to lose more than 2% of its value per year. When they realize it's more likely to lose 20% of its value per year than 2%, nobody is going to want to go along for that ride, right? Who's going to want to go down with that ship? Everyone's going to abandon and they're going to buy gold. They're going to buy real assets and, and that's it. Yeah. Let's back up a little bit because do you think there's an argument for disinflation or maybe even deflation 
in the short term. So I'm just saying, let's just talk about 2023 for a moment, because a lot of what you're talking about, you know, the banks collapsing, a stock market crash, uh, the real estate market getting more expensive, therefore people can't afford, you know, it reduces the amount of buyers that are out there. A lot of that is, is disinflationary. And if you go back to 2009, I think Q1 or Q2, uh, we actually did see a little spurt of price deflation before the central planners came in and kind of executed the game plan that you're talking about. So do you think that that's what, you know, what would you assess the probabilities of just in the near short term, because we have this crash that we actually see, especially asset prices going down significantly and maybe even consumer prices? Yeah, well, look, you can make an argument for anything and you can argue that that might happen. I would argue that the odds of that happening in any significant way are, are pretty slim. I mean, first of all, to the extent that we've had disinflation, we've had that already, right? The year-over-year CPI gains have gone from 9% to 6%. So we have had, you know, a easing of the measured inflation. So that that's already happened. And I think one of the reasons that happened was because you had a big drop in commodity prices from their peaks because of the idea that the Fed was going to get real aggressive in hiking rates and that every time we saw signs of inflation, the markets just said, oh, no, the Fed's going to fight harder to kill it, which means they're going to stay higher for longer. And so that was helping the dollar and that was uh, pushing down uh, commodity prices off their highs. But now that we've kind of reached the end of the tightening cycle, right, I mean, it most people now would probably concede that there's no more rate hikes coming. And if they are, they're meaningless at this point. I mean, the Fed goes from five to five and a quarter. I mean, what's, you know, really, it's not that big a deal, right? But they're probably not even going to do that. They're probably done at five. Um, and quantitative tightening for all intent and purpose is over. I mean, they've just gone back 400 billion. I mean, they've wiped out like eight months of quantitative tightening in two weeks or whatever it is. <laughs> so, I mean, I mean, they're almost back to where they started. And, and, and so that's gone. And it's more likely that they're going to, you know, keep keep doing this. Their balance sheet is going to keep on blowing up. So what's going to push the dollar up at this point? What's going to push commodities on? No, nothing. I mean, now the markets are going to look forward to this next easing cycle that's just started. And that is bearish for dollars. That is bullish for commodities. That is bullish for gold. And so as the economy gets worse, as we get more of these bank failures, if they're allowed to happen, all that's going to do is result in even more inflationary monetary and fiscal policies. And remember, the budget deficits are going to skyrocket in this recession, not only because their tax revenues are diminishing and uh, their expenditures are going up, right? but their interest expenses, even if the Fed stops raising rates, even if the Fed starts cutting rates, it doesn't matter. Because even if they took rates from 5% to 3%, that's still going to increase the deficit because you still have all this debt maturing that was at a 25 basis points, 50 basis right. points that has to be rolled over. So the interest expense is going to be rising, uh, unlike other recessions where the Fed cut rates and they can, they can bring their interest expense down. They can't do that anymore. And that's the other difference between where the Fed is now when they're launching QE and where it was in the past, where you still had this sub 2% inflation, at least the way they, they measured it, when you're now at 
Uh, and you've got all this inflation still in the pipeline. You know, a lot of people think that this is just the result of COVID policy, like, you know, all the money we printed after COVID. No, it, this is the cumulative effect of all the money we printed before COVID. I don't even know that we've caught up to the inflation that we unleashed after COVID yet. I mean, that's coming. But I think we're still catching up to QE1 and QE2. So we got a long way to go. And, and the Fed has, you know, really done nothing. I mean, I talked about this at length on my podcast, but when Volcker actually fought inflation, when he came in in 1980 and said, okay, that's it, you know, rates went up to 20% in 1980. Everybody knows that. But no one really talks about the fact that by 1986, which is the first year that we got back to 2% inflation, six years later, the Fed funds rate was 16%. <laughs> so, I mean, it was high for a long time to get the inflation rate down to 2%. And it didn't even stay there because it took another 12 years for it to be below 2% again. So that's how difficult it is to get the rate down to 2% when you have high inflation. Now, I think the inflation that we have now is higher than what it was in the 70s because we're not using the same CPI to measure it. If we did, well, then we would see a higher number. But we have a bigger inflation problem than we had in the 70s, and we're less able to solve it because we can't do what's necessary, which is really raise interest rates when we're so broke. Because look what happened to Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. They are the tip of the iceberg, right? You go back to the 2008 financial crisis, the, the first warning signs of that crisis was subprime. So subprime blew up first. A couple of key subprime lenders blew up and then the, the, the paper, and that's where it started. And if you remember, the Federal Reserve and pretty much everybody else was saying, oh, don't worry about it. This is just contained the subprime, right? The, the whole economy is fine. The housing market, the mortgage market is fine. It's just this one little part of the market that, that was a problem, right? And what I was saying at the time was, no, no, it's, this is the tip of a huge iceberg. Um, the entire market, mortgage market, has this problem. It's just that this is the weakest link. So it snapped first, right? This is where, you know, you, you saw the, the damage. The same thing is happening today with the Silicon Valley banks and the, you know, the signature banks. It's like, yes, these banks toppled first because they were in the worst shape. You know, they had... 95% of their deposits uninsured. They had all these large deposits from tech companies that were losing money and that now needed some of that money to offset the bleeding at their companies, right? Or they wanted to take some money out of the bank and start earning some interest, right? The, you know, these are sophisticated people. Hey, why do I have my money at Silicon Valley Bank? They're paying me nothing. I'll buy, I'll buy T-bills. And by the way, too, you said earlier that we need deposit insurance because the average guy is too dumb to understand banking. Well, I didn't say that. That's just the argument here. Right. Yeah. But what about all the millionaires and billionaires and, 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 and hedge funds and, and tech companies that banked over at Silicon Valley Bank? They're too dumb to figure it out, right? These are supposedly yeah. the smartest people in the country, yet we're bailing them out. And we said that they're that they're that they're too dumb. But but getting back to what my point, they're saying that, oh, it's just these banks. No, these are just the weakest links, just like subprime. All of the banks in the country have the identical problem. And if a significant percentage of any of these banks' customers wanted to withdraw their money, the banks would fail. Any bank, all, even the too big to fail banks would fail. Probably if 10% of the customers of Bank of America or Citibank or Wells Fargo wanted their money, they wouldn't have it, 
right? They, they'll wipe out their capital. And, 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 and now the reason, you know, right now nobody's rushing to get the money because, you know, they're too big to fail. But what happens when they want their money? Because it's losing too much value. They don't want to leave it there. They want to do something else with it, right? The, the, banks, the banks don't have it. So th this is a huge financial crisis. <clears throat> it's exactly like 2008, except worse because it's bigger. Yeah, but I think isn't that, again, a, an argument for de or disinflation first and then inflation based on the and I'm just talking about consumer prices, because if let's just assume for a moment that all the banks went bust tomorrow. Right. Uh, at Ninety nine percent of the dollars that circulate in the U.S. economy are liabilities of the bank. Yeah. So if they so go George, bust, those dollars go there's no more dollars yeah. left. And then you yes. have a massive deflationary bust. Yes. If the banks are allowed to fail and if the depositors are allowed to lose their money, then you are correct. Right. But I don't think that is going to happen. <laughs> I think that even though these banks should fail, they won't because the government won't let them. The yeah. Federal Reserve won't let them. They will print enough additional money to make sure that no bank fails and that no customer loses money. And, and that's where you get the inflation because there is no free lunch. Either you're going to lose your money in the bank or your money is gonna lose its value in the bank. But one way or another, the customers are gonna get screwed. The only question is how, right? So either the bank fails and it doesn't get bailed out and you lose your money, right? The money you had on deposit goes away and you don't have it. The alternative is your bank doesn't fail because the government bailed it out. But to do that, they had to print so much money that the money you have at the bank doesn't buy you very much. So at the yeah. end of the day, you're in the same position. You can't buy anything. It's yeah. either because you don't have any money or your money doesn't have any value. And, and that's why when Biden or you know the, the Powell says, oh, these bank balance aren't costing the taxpayer any money. Yes, they are. They're just not paying higher taxes. They're paying higher prices. Inflation yeah. is an alternative form of taxation. Yeah, great point. So you really focused on the asset side of these banks balance sheet, but I, I'd really like your insight on the liability side, because the way I've been thinking about it lately is the Fed comes in and does QE in 2008, 2009, and they flush the banking system with reserves to the point where these banks didn't have to compete for deposits. So no matter how high the Fed raises rates, the Fed funds, these banks are still paying, let's say, 50 basis points on a savings account. So you said earlier, you know, what are people doing? They're saying, you know, why would I park my money in a bank when I can get 5% on a T-bill or I can get 4.8% in a money market fund? So let's just assume for a moment they take those deposits out. And this is all because of QE, because the system is flushed with reserves. They take those deposits and put them into a money market fund. Now, all of a sudden, those reserves on the Fed's balance sheet go from the banking system into reverse repo, which effectively is quantitative tightening. So you see what I'm saying? Is there a scenario where the Fed yeah, because continue? Remember, because first ahead. of all, where are the banks going to get the money to allow their depositors to withdraw? They're going to no, get- No, I'm saying that they, that they just take their deposit and say, hey, I want to move it over to this money market fund. Right. So now it's, it, and when it goes into the money market fund, it goes into treasuries or corporate bonds, whatever that money no, market No, it goes fund. into reverse repo. You see, well, so, so the money market fund takes the what's basically M2 or M1 
And then they take, and that would be reserves in the banking system on the Fed's balance sheet. So when the money market fund takes those uh, dollars, well, the money market fund buys short-term debt of you know either the governments or corporations, you know, high-quality short-term commercial paper, right? That's that's what your your money yeah, market. But re reverse repo is collateralized. So what they're doing is they're taking those money market funds, a lot of them, you know, not all of them, but a lot of them are taking those dollars and putting them into reverse repo on the Fed's balance sheet, and the Fed collateralizes that, right? With, but, treasuries or whatever. but in order for the bank to enable its customer to do that transaction, when it's already took taken that money and, and, and bought an asset that's now worth 60 cents, and now the customer says, I want my dollar, and the bank's like, well, I only have 60 cents, right? I can't give you a dollar, yeah. but you, know, you want the whole dollar. The way they're getting it now is they're taking the 60 cents, they're giving it to the Fed, and the Fed's giving them a dollar. So you're saying the Fed is getting it on its balance sheet, but it expanded its balance sheet to make the whole transaction possible. I don't see, you know, how this is okay, a deflationary it. thing. Yeah, so if, Peter, let and, me, and, before and you go on, let me. Everybody explain. keeps spending, right? Nobody is reducing their consumption. Everybody is spending. If you can't afford it, you borrow the money to pay for it. The government keeps spending, uh, but they don't have the money. Nobody is raising taxes. Uh, governments keep spending more and more but nobody's taxes are going up. So how are we getting all this government? Well, inflation. Inflation is the way we are financing government. So we're, we're not gonna get around it. I, you know, for a while we were able to export a lot of the inflation to China, you know, uh, but that's not gonna happen anymore. The, the Chinese don't want our inflation anymore. You know, they're, they're selling dollars, you know, and they're gonna keep doing that. And look at what they're doing. You know, they're, they're working out deals with Saudi Arabia you know, they're, you know, they're, they're staying away from the US. I mean, they're, they're, they're moving away from the dollar. Yeah. So let me, before you move on, let me explain that because you had a great point there. And I think you kind of just glossed over it quickly, but I don't know if everyone followed what you were saying there. So basically I've got my deposit making 50 basis points and I'm like, absolutely not. I want to put it with a money market fund. So you tell your bank to wire that money over, but to do that, the bank needs to sell that treasury that they just took a massive haircut on. Uh, because they have to get those reserves to send to the money market fund in the first place. So what they do is is they can't sell it at 60 cents on the dollar. So they have to give it to the Fed in this bank funding term program or whatever the hell it's called. And then the Fed goes and takes that as collateral. They give them the reserves, which increases the size of their balance sheet. And then they give it to the money market fund that puts it in reverse repo. So on net balance, the amount of reserves with the banks hasn't changed and the Fed's balance sheet has expanded even though a, a bigger portion of reserves has gone down into the money market fund. I, I just wanted to clear that up yeah, for people. And, and, That's and, a great and, point. And now the Fed can hold that mark-to-market security indefinitely on its books and pretend it's worth par. But you know, eventually, the Fed's balance sheet is going to be uh, of increasingly long duration. And, and, and that means that it's going to be that much harder for the Fed to shrink its balance sheet without you know, realizing huge losses which it then has to pass on to the U.S. government, which supposedly has to reimburse the Fed for what it's lost when the U.S. government is broke. <laughs> and the way it gets money is from the Fed. You know, I thought it was funny in this uh, hearing, they had uh, one of the congressmen or women, I forget who, you know, asked the Fed, you know, is there any risk to these loans, right? You're, you're lending a dollar, but you're only getting, you know, whatever, 60 cents worth of collateral. You know, what about the risk to the Fed? And he said, oh, we're not taking any risk because it's, everything is guaranteed by the FDIC. <laughs> like, oh, OK, well, who's guaranteeing the FDIC? Because they barely have any money. So, you know, at the end of the day, it's the Federal Reserve that's backstopping the FDIC. So, I mean, it, it, everybody just looks the other way and makes these ridiculous statements as if, uh, you know, 
there's no risk. You know, I, I'm thinking, you know, I, I always think of that line from Superman. He's like, she he says like, you got me, who's got you, right? Nobody's got the FDIC. I mean, it, it, you know, it, the whole thing is resting on, you know, everybody else's promise to bail each other out. But at the end of the day, it's the, it's the public that's going to pay because the currency is going to be debased because that's it. Every road leads to inflation. That's, that's what happens. Hey guys, I want to remind you to check out Rebel Capitalist Pro. This is the incredible online investment forum that I have with investment experts, Lynn Alden and Chris McIntosh. It includes professionals such as Patrick Serezna from Macro Voices. He specializes in options. Tony Greer, commodity trading. Jason Hartman, real estate. And Brent Johnson with Macro Economics. If you want to build wealth and thrive in this world of out-of-control central banks and big governments, Rebel Capitalist Pro is the resource you need. So check it out today at georgegammon.com forward slash pro. That's georgegammon.com forward slash pro. We'll see you inside with the fellow rebel capitalists that are taking their investing to the next level. So let's talk about the 1940s uh, versus the 1970s. I, I know you use the 1970s as uh, an analogy all the time or an example. Um, but 1940s was a, a big inflationary decade. And we did see the inflation come down significantly from 47 to 48 or 49, from 19% down to negative two. Mm-hmm. And they were pegging the yield curve. So the interest rates were not even close to positive in real terms. They were substantially negative. So I, I, I guess explain why you think the 2020s will be more like the 1970s than the 1940s when the 1940s were very inflationary, but they were more spiky. You know what I mean? Yeah, They're well, more volatile. We had the huge up and yeah. huge downs. There is a big difference between America in the 1940s and, and America in the, in the 2030s. I mean, it, it, it's, it's night and day. So first of all, yes, we had a lot of inflation during the first half of the 40s because of the way we paid for the Second World War. I mean, sure, there were huge tax increases during the Second World War. Right? The government raised taxes on the middle class significantly. The victory tax hit in 1943. And that was the first time that you know taxes were withheld from workers' paychecks. Prior to 1943, there was, you know, you got your income tax, you got your income, you know, your paycheck. There was Social Security because that started in the 30s. That was like 1%, right, of your first, a little bit of your money. But that was all they, they withheld. There was, there was no income tax that was, that was taken out. So that was changed during the war. And then the government borrowed a lot of money, legitimately borrowed it, not from the Fed. I mean, they borrowed money from individuals. They were selling war bonds. Right. Uh, Americans, you know, had enough money to loan the government money to fight the war, right? Now, even with all the war bonds that they sold and the taxes they raised, they still didn't have enough to cover the cost of the Second World War. So the Fed stepped in and printed the difference, right? So that was part of the inflation. But you know, there's two parts. It's supply and demand. So you had more money. But what happened? Well, we had all these factories that stopped producing, you know, consumer goods and started producing military goods. So we made a lot of bombs and a lot of tanks and fighter planes, but, you know, we didn't make other things. And so the supply of those other things went down. 
prices went way up. In fact, they, there was rationing, a lot of stuff you couldn't even buy, you know, because it was all for the war effort. So, yeah, we had a lot of inflation. Government spending went way up. Money printing went way up. Now, 1945 comes. The war is over. Now what happens? The government cuts spending dramatically because we don't have a war anymore. The war is over. We can stop spending. So the government cuts spending. 10 million Americans who were fighting in Europe and Japan come back into the labor force and start working again. And they're not producing bombs anymore. They're producing sewing machines or refrigerators or washer dryers or automobiles, right? They're making the stuff that consumers need. So all of a sudden we have all these workers that are now producing for peacetime civilian. The government dramatically cuts back on its spending because it's no longer having to fund this war effort. And it's able to start paying down the national debt with some surpluses that it had because, you know, they didn't get rid of the income tax when the war was over. So when the war ended, the government is flush with all this tax revenue. So they're able to pay down debt. And so the debt to GDP, which was something like, I don't know, maybe got the 110 or 100% of GDP, whatever it was in 1945, gradually went down. I forget where the trough was. It was probably sometime in maybe the 70s or and it got down to like 30% or 80. I know of GDP, right? We never- yeah, At the end of the 1970s, it was like 30. I think we went into the 70s at like 60. Yeah, we, we never completely eradicated it, but you know, we brought it down quite a bit. But also during the 1940s, America was the primary global industrial power. Um, we manufactured everything in America. We had enormous trade surpluses in everything. We produced everything and exported everything. We had all the world's gold pretty much. You know, so we were the wealthiest country by far. We were the world's wealthiest creditor nation. And so paying our debt down was a lot easier because we were rich. Americans were flush with savings. You know, the government was still relatively small in comparison to uh, GDP. We didn't have a whole army of people on Social Security. Social Security just started. <laughs> it was mostly people were just paying in. Hardly anybody was collecting. Everybody was just paying taxes. So the government had that money. Uh, so Fast forward to today, we are the opposite of the country we were then. Instead of having huge trade surpluses, we have huge trade deficits. Instead of being the wealthiest creditor nation, we're the brokest debtor nation. We owe more money than all the other debtor nations combined. We have an enormous debt, right? We have a debt to GDP that now exceeds the peak of the Second World War, except we didn't even fight a world war. We, we right. just got there during peacetime, right, yep. to this massive debt. And we have all these entitlements that we didn't really have that were just getting started. I mean, we didn't have any of the great society programs yet. We didn't have Medicare, Medicaid. That didn't come in until the 1960s. We didn't have Obamacare. So we have this huge welfare state now that didn't exist back then. We have enormous obligations. You know, we have this $30 trillion national debt, 32 trillion. What was it back then? I mean, 100 billion? I, I forget where. I mean, it didn't even get to a trillion until 1980. That's when it got to a trillion. Now it's more than 30 times that big. So even though you know the debt to GDP was large on the percentage basis, it was still small compared to the enormity of the debt we have now. And of course, the debt we had back then was long-term. When the government borrowed, they were smart enough to borrow for 10 years or 30 years. They didn't borrow for 90 days, you know, like we did, like our government was dumb enough to do, you know, all this short-term debt. You know, I, I it's funny when. I hear the in, in the hearings, everybody wants to talk about how dumb the executives were at Silicon Valley Bank. Well, you guys are a bunch of idiots. You know, why did you buy all these long-term bonds? Well, 
the U.S. government, the U.S. Treasury, they were just as much idiots for not taking advantage. It's like, hey, you idiots, why didn't you borrow for 30 years when rates were at lacquer lows? Why were you? Why did you shorten the maturity of your debt? Why were you so dumb that instead of taking out a fixed rate mortgage on the country, you took out an adjustable rate? Why did right. you do that? Right. Well, because it, it saved money in the short run. Right. Well, that's the same thing that Silicon Valley Bank did. They made money in the short run. You see, if they would have done the smart thing and not buy long term government debt, debt, if they would have just bought T-bills, they would have earned close to zero. So to earn an extra 100, 150 basis points, they went long. And so that temporarily boosted their profits at the long term expense of huge losses. Right. Which we're now experiencing. The U.S. government did the same thing instead of borrowing for 30 years at two, two and a half percent. They borrowed for one year at 25 basis points because yeah. it temporarily lowered the deficits, but was a ticking time bomb, which I was talking about also for over 10 years. Saying what is going to happen when interest rates eventually rise? What is going to happen to our debt? Right. Well, we're about to find out because it's just starting. Do you think we'll get price controls? Well, look, we've already had price controls on interest rates, right? I mean, that, that's what that's what the Fed does. It controls the price of, of interest, of, of debt. But do I think we will have... Like 1970s, uh, 1940s type price controls? Yeah, look, the government tends to repeat every mistake it's ever made. It yeah. never learns from its mistakes. Like, gee, that didn't work. Let's not do that again, right? <laughs> if it doesn't work, they just, well, we'll just do it bigger. Maybe, maybe it'll work better if we do more of it. Right. But yeah, I'm sure that there's going to be price controls. Again, they have succeeded in redefining inflation as rising prices. And that's what everybody thinks it is. So if inflation is rising prices, well, how do you stop prices from rising? Well, pass a law. Hey, just like you can't raise your prices. That, that problem solved, right? Because that's why they blame greedy businesses, Elizabeth Warren. Oh, they're gouging, price gouging. Or it's Putin. Putin's raising prices. Well, let's just make it illegal to raise prices. And so that is the political easy solution. They're still doing that. Other countries say, oh, you know, you know, they, in a way they kind of do that. You know, whenever there's a, a natural disaster and you start to see prices going up, they say, oh, no, there's a price gouging law. You can't raise prices. Well, then there's just a shortage, right? You can't get stuff. I mean, you have to allow the price signal to work. So right. when there is a shortage, you have to let prices go up because that's how you clear the market. And by allowing prices to rise, you increase supply and reduce demand. And that ultimately will bring prices back down. But if instead of letting the market function, if you short circuit it and you keep the price down, then you exacerbate the shortage. You encourage more demand and you discourage additional supply. So you make the problem you're trying to solve worse. So yeah. if the government says, oh, we're going to stop businesses from raising prices, what's going to happen? Well, the supply of goods is going to go down and the real price level is going to be even higher than the artificial level that you've established. And so what does that mean? It doesn't mean that uh, prices go down. It just means that the price of stuff that you can't buy has gone down, right? Because if you actually want to buy it, it's way more expensive. Like, let's, let's just say apples, right? Let's just say the government says, you can't charge more than a dollar an apple, right? That's the price, that's the limit on apples. All right, well, what if it costs the farmers $3 to, to get an apple to the market? Yeah, no well, apple. Right. So, yes, a dollar is the price of apples, except there's no apples to buy. You can't buy one. Now, there is a black market where you can illegally acquire an apple, and there is five bucks. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, but the government doesn't acknowledge that price, right? That's the black market price. Now, 
the black market price has to be even higher than what the price would have been in the absence of price controls because the person who's selling you that Apple illegally is risking going to jail. <laughs> and yeah. so that premium gets built into the price of the Apple, right? It's, you know, it's why anything that's illegal is more expensive to buy because the person selling it to you takes a big risk that he, that he might go to jail, right? <laughs> so wh whenever the government imposes price controls, they always make it worse because they force people to go to a black market and pay even higher prices. And the only way, let's say you could get a legal apple, maybe let's say there's a few apples that you can actually buy for a dollar, but there's like a six hour line that you got to stand in and you're limited to one at a time. <laughs> you know, you can get one apple and you're going to, now the rich people, they can get it because they pay somebody to stand in line for them, <laughs> but it ends up costing a lot of money because not only do you have to pay for the apple, but you got to pay this guy to stand in line all day to get it for you. Right. Yeah. So look, the government just tries to disguise the way inflation is, is, is showing up, but you can never succeed in bringing down inflation. It's like if somebody has got a really high temperature and the doctor says, well, just smash the thermometer. That's my that's my uh, my my, that's my solution. solution. Yeah. yeah. Well, all right. Doesn't mean you're not going to be sick anymore just because I can't take your temperature and prove that you're sick. Right. Yeah. So you have to get to the root cause. Okay, why is this guy sick? Let me let me let me try to treat the condition instead of cover it up by smashing the thermometer. But the, the, the reason that we have the inflation is because of the government spending and the money printing. So the only solutions to inflation is for the government to cut spending so that the Federal Reserve can stop printing. But they never want to do that. In fact, the, the asinine Biden administration, the Inflation Reduction Act was a spending bill. <laughs> right. We're going to spend more money. Right? It's like we have the Arson Reduction Act. And what this does is we go we'll all go around lighting fires. Right. Yeah, right. And this is going to reduce you know, it, it, it is ridiculous. But this is what these guys think. They think, oh, we have more inflation. Let's solve the problem with another government program. It would never dawn on them that the existing government programs are why we have the inflation, because that's how we're paying for them. And so if we want less inflation, we need less government. Yeah, but no. it's never going to happen. Yeah. What? Let, let me ask you a more broad question here as we kind of wrap things up. Um, I did a study the other day, just on M two, going back to the eighteen hundreds, and because everyone talks about money printing, money printing, money printing, and inflation, consumer prices going up, right? And uh, from it was roughly eighteen seventy to nineteen hundred, M two went up by about four hundred percent, but prices went down by fifty during that time frame. And then if you look at the same about, you know, 30 year period from call it 1990 to 2020, uh, oddly enough, M2 went up by about the same amount by 400%. But instead of getting 50% deflation, <laughs> we had about a hundred and I think it was 25% inflation. So getting into the nuance there, is it just the creation of currency units that's bad or is it the creation of currency units for consumption because of the involvement of the government. Yeah, well, I mean, look, you have to also take a step back and look at, you know, a broader time period of, uh, of what's going on with money. And, and you know, a lot of that uh, credit, you, you know, you talk, you know, could, could have come in 
uh, via uh, you know commercial lending where businesses were borrowing and 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 putting that money to productive use. I think that's financing. what yeah that that's my conclusion is that uh, they were taking the additional credit, the additional currency units, but we were getting even more supply. There was like a multiplier yes. effect yes, there. The, with the, the, the money was the, the money was being put to productive use. It yeah. wasn't being borrowed and spent. It was being borrowed and invested, and the investments generated an income which was sufficient to ultimately retire that debt. Yeah, and uh, so produce was, more stuff. So there was actually few more stuff for those currency units that, was, that were being created. Yes, yes. You know, and so the money supply was expanding along with the economy. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and so uh, that was that was a good thing. And it wasn't being engineered by government. It was all a private sector phenomenon of the, the, the creation of credit because we were still on a gold standard at that time. And, uh, you know, so all money was ultimately gold. The money that was created during the more recent time period was simply spent into circulation by government through transfer payments, uh, you know, or it was spent into circulation through the banks, through, you know, just trading. Uh, but there was no real capital investment. Right. You know, if a company just borrows money and buy back stock, and puts money into the economy because it buys stock and it pays for the stock with the money it borrows. And now that money goes into circulation and starts buying crap made in China. You know, it doesn't help the business become any more productive, but it does put more purchasing power into the hands of consumers who can go out and buy stuff that we didn't make. And that's, you know, why you saw these uh, soaring trade deficits. Yeah. But people just don't seem to understand the difference between money that goes towards uh, productive investment versus spending. And they just think, well, as long as the money's spent, what difference does it make? What we, what we spend it on, you know, building a factory or, or buying crap made in China. They, they, all they care about is, you know, that we spent it. <laughs> Doesn't matter what we spent it on. Well, if you, if you spend the money on consumer goods, the money is gone. You got nothing to show for it. You know, you know, you, you know, you've just got some used stuff, you know, what can you get for that on eBay? Right. I mean, the stuff loses a lot of value. But when you invest the money and you build a factory, now you got something. You got you got something that can keep on producing. Yeah. Right. So, and, so and, do you think the free market would choose or, or maybe what is your opinion as to what's best, fractional reserve or full reserve? Well, I think as long as you have a fractional reserve system in a free market, um, it's fine. Okay. Because the banks have to choose based on their own reputation how much reserves they need to keep on hand to ensure that they can survive or run. And there is a competitive force that is going to choose a healthy balance in that system. Because if you have insufficient reserves, people aren't going to trust your bank and they might want to withdraw the money, which might precipitate its demise. And if your greatest asset is your goodwill, your, the fact that the customer trusts you, you've got a good reputation that it took a long time to develop, you are going to safeguard that asset. Right. And, and so banks will compete with one another and find a healthy balance where, hey, you don't have to have 100% of your reserves just sitting there, right? Maybe 50% is a good number. But also another way that banks would solve this problem, and this is what they used to do way back when, is they would differentiate their time deposits from their demand deposits. Yeah. There really is no difference right now. 
But the bank would say, hey, you want to earn interest on your money, lock it up for a year or five years. And we'll loan out that money because, you know, you can't have it. You've committed to leave it here. If you want to have a demand deposit where you could just take it all out whenever you want, well, well, we won't loan that money out, but then we're not going to pay you any interest. In fact, we're going to charge you for every check that you write. So if you want us to just safeguard your money and make it easier for you to transact with it, we're not going to loan it out. You can have all of it whenever you want, and we're just going to charge you. However, if you don't need the money, if you're willing to tie it up for five years, we'll, we'll, we'll pay you interest. Yeah. And now we'll take that money and loan it out because we know we got it tied up. And yeah, if you need it early, you can have it, but you're going to get a penalty. We're going to charge yeah. you something to break that CD. So, you know, this would happen. The banking system would function beautifully in a free market. It did function beautifully. You know, we got the FDIC as a result of the Great Depression, right? And it was one of the harebrained schemes dreamed up by FDR and his cronies that came in uh, during that time period. But yes, there were a lot of bank failures during the depression, right? And the reason was, you know, we had a, a crash in the market. Stocks crashed, real estate crashed. You know, th that was collateral for a lot of loans. But why did we have that mania? It was because of the Fed, right? Once again, the Fed was brand new in the 1920s. We didn't, it didn't start till 1913. And it started cranking up the printing presses in 1917 to, to help pay for World War I. And that excess credit spilled over into the stock market, real estate market. So we had a bubble, particularly in the second half of the 20s, based on the policy mistakes that were made then to kind of bail out the Bank of England and because they were having a, a run on the pound. And so we were trying to, to lower our rates to try to make the pound look less ugly. And, you know, and, and a lot of excess credit was created during the latter part of the 20s. And, you know, the bubble popped when the when the Fed did the right thing eventually and tried to withdraw the liquidity. And, you know, they precipitated a crash. Now, of course, it was made much worse by the interventionist policies of Hoover uh, and then expanded by Roosevelt, who did everything that Hoover did only on a bigger scale. Interestingly enough, when 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 Roosevelt ran for election, he criticized the big spending of Hoover, promised to balance the budget. That's so that how was, it works. That was it? his platform. Oh, that works. Yeah. And so as but as soon as he got in, he, 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 he did exactly what Hoover did, exactly what he criticized him for, only on a bigger scale. But one of the things they did is they, they looked at these bank failures and they said, OK, we have to have deposited. But if you actually look at how much money was lost, because most of these banks that failed, the depositors got money back. It wasn't like they got nothing. Right? It was like the bank went out of business and you lost everything. Right? You, you were first in line as a depositor, right? You got, you know, you, you were going to get paid. Um, I think the total amount of money that was lost was 2% of the deposits. That was mm -hmm. it. 2% of the money was lost. Now, prices went down about 30% during the depression. So the money that wasn't lost gained so much purchasing power relative to the 2% that was lost. So more than in, made real, up for it. in real terms, your bank deposits were worth a lot more. Even if yeah. you lost 2%, <laughs> you gained 28%, right? The 98 cents you had left. Now, obviously, it wasn't equally distributed. Somebody right. didn't lose anything, and somebody might have lost everything. But in aggregate, purchasing power was gained. We had a much sounder banking system. This year, right? What inflation is triple 2%. Americans are losing more money every year to inflation than they lost to all the bank failures during the 1930s. Because remember, we didn't have any inflation back then. Mm. The opposite. But of course, because of the FDIC and all these programs, let's say the government didn't want to guarantee any of the banks because they none of them were guaranteed during the 1930s. It was all you know free market, right? 
live or die, it's, you're on your own. Nobody got a bailout, right? No banks were bailed out. If the government took that approach now, I would say that maybe 50% of the bank deposits would be lost. I mean, so it would dwarf what happened during the depression with all the government guarantees. So we had a much sounder system without any government protections because we had yeah. the free market protections. But because the government eliminated the pre free market protections and supplanted it with socialism, it's a complete disaster. But again, what's going to happen this time, as I said earlier, is the banks are not going to be allowed to fail. The money is going to fail instead because they're going to print too much of it to prevent the banks from failing. So yep. either way, you should get your money out of the bank now. So, so Peter, how, how are you doing that? With I know we can't give individual investment advice here, but how are you doing that other than gold and silver? How are you doing that with your own money and your own portfolio uh, You know, with your dry powder? What are you doing yeah. with it? Well, I mean, I, I've seen this train wreck coming for, for years, decades. So I, I, I've been prepared, right? I, I prepared early and I don't have that much dry powder. I mean, most of my powder has already been deployed. I mean, I got some, but the majority of my portfolio, the vast majority is invested. And so what am I invested in? I mean, I might have, you know, five, 10% cash, something like that. But I mean, mostly I'm invested, right? And what am I invested in? Well, I own gold and silver. You know, instead of owning more cash, I own gold and silver as an alternative to cash, right? Because I think it's better money. It's a better store of value. Uh, governments can't print it, you know, so I own that. But I don't generate any income off my gold and silver. I generate income off my stocks. Right. I own a lot of dividend paying stocks all around the world that are in a good position to raise prices, to recoup rising costs and keep me ahead of inflation or even with inflation and and pay me dividends. You know, I've owned these stocks for years. I've been collecting interest dividends for years and I've been able to reinvest that in more shares or more gold and silver. Um, you know, and that's what I would encourage people to do now is you have to get out of paper. You have to recognize that inflation is going to be a giant transfer of wealth from the debtors, I mean, from the creditors to the debtors, right? Mm. The debtors are broke and they can't repay their loans, including the US government, which is the king of all debtors, right? We owe more, the government is, has the most debt and therefore has the most to gain from inflation, which is you know why it creates it. So when the government wipes out its debt through inflation, it wipes out everybody's assets who count their assets in US dollars. And that would be US treasuries, you know, mortgage-backed securities, municipal bonds, corporate bonds, savings, cash value in an insurance policy, a fixed annuity, right? Your Social Security or your pension benefits, right? Those are the people who get wiped out in inflation, right? The debtor, if you got a big 30-year fixed-rate mortgage, you know, your mortgage gets wiped out. You own your house free and clear. You know, it's going to cost you a fortune if you have to fix something. You know, it's going to cost you an arm and a leg to heat it. You may be living in a in a house that you own without a mortgage, but you're not going to have any heat because, you, you know, you may not be you, the, the roof may be leaking and maybe you'll be renting out two or three rooms to strangers. Because, the taxes, right? Yeah. So a lot of stuff's going to happen. But as a debtor, you get your you get your mortgage wiped out. So I want my clients to be protected from that in order to be a winner during inflation. You can't have you can't be a creditor. You have to own real assets, real things that will maintain their value. So if we have hyperinflation and pack of chewing gum, chewing gum costs, you know, a million dollars, 
you know, I'm a trillionaire because my stocks are worth trillions, right? Now, in real terms, they may not be worth any more than they were before. But when a pack of chewing gum is a million dollars, you better be a trillionaire. And if you want to chew gum and have any money left over. So I own assets that have real value. And so they're going to maintain their real value regardless of what the currency is worth. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm investing in, in other countries, you know, where I think they're sounder, sounder economies, uh, better, you know, economic fundamentals. And last year, the strategy paid off really well. I mean, we had positive returns in my dividend payers strategy and my value strategy, you know, in a year which is one of the worst years ever in stocks and bonds, and we were positive. In fact, we did so well on a relative basis because our relative performance was far better than our absolute performance. But I got all kinds of awards. Lipper just gave us an award uh, last week. You know, I couldn't accept it. I was here celebrating my 60th birthday. But on my birthday, they they gave the fund the award for the best fund of uh, 20. It was a good birthday uh, gift. 2022 uh, uh, interna- international dividend. Uh, uh, U.S. News and World Report, they, they came out with an article about a month, month and a half ago. They ranked the top 60 funds out of the 350 in the category. They, they kind of wrote about the top 60. I had number one and number three. You know, Goldman Sachs had number two, but they had a lot more funds in the category than me. I had two funds and I ended up, you know, with one and, and three. Uh, and that was looking at the funds over one year, three year, and five years. So it wasn't just the one year look. It was like looking back over three and five years, and I was still on the top. And yeah. had you done that survey a year or two earlier, I'd have been near the bottom. And the mm-hmm. reason was I avoided all the stuff that blew up in 2022 because I could see it blowing up from a mile away. So I think my strategy of value and 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 dividends and avoiding financials and avoiding the overpriced tech, it's just starting to pay off. And I think I have many, many more years of much better relative performance. But I think the key to my absolute performance, where I think my funds are going to crush it, is a weak dollar. Because that's what it's designed for. I mean, I, I, I'm still beating my competitors with a strong dollar. But yeah. when we get a weak dollar, that's when I'm really going to shine. Because that's what my strategies are ultimately designed for. I mean, we yeah. can do okay with a strong dollar, but we should crush it with a weak dollar. And I yep. think the dollar is going to be historically weak. I think we're going to collapse to all-time record lows. I mean, you know, your buddy, uh, Brett Johnson, you know, the, you know, the milkshake theory, you know, again, I think that's all wet. I mean, he's, he's a bright guy, you know, but uh, I, 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 think he, I think he's got this wrong. It, well, you know, he's going to be at Rebel Capitalist Live, Peter, as yeah. are you. So we might set up a debate maybe between you and Brent on the dollar. So I just want to remind everyone, if they haven't got their ticket to Rebel Capitalist Live, yeah, you got to go to rebelcapitalistlive.com and do it ASAP. My son Spencer will be there too. You know, to, <laughs> try to try to debate me on Bitcoin. He's he's not willing to go up on the stage yet, but you know, maybe you can see some kind of sideshow arguments there between. Uh, yeah. Between- so if you want to meet Peter, if you want to meet Sp- Spencer, if you want to hear Peter debate with Brent, or maybe maybe we might set up a Bitcoin debate, uh, a sideshow like he says, or maybe with a Lynn Alden, something like that. Again, you got to get your tickets ASAP. We'll have Josh throw up a link yeah. there. But Peter, how do uh, folks find out about these funds that have been performing so well? And um, I, I would agree, will most likely perform very well throughout the rest of the decade, assuming this decade will be inflationary. Yeah. And, you know, I think everything that worked when the bubble was inflating is going to be the worst places to be as it, you know, deflates. Right. And, 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 and the average American, they own all these hyped up, uh, you know, fang type stocks, money losing tech companies, meme stocks, cryptocurrencies, NFTs, 
all kinds of crap that only went up because money was free and people thought that it, the party would never end and there'd never be inflation and rates would stay low. But in a rising rate inflationary environment, it's the opposite types of names that work. It's the value, it's the dividend payers, it's the emerging markets, uh, it's the precious metals. You know, Those things are gonna just do extremely well and very few people are properly positioned, nor will they be positioned because they're, they're still wedded uh, to the past. They still don't get that the game has changed because they never understood the game to begin with, right? Uh, but if you wanna learn about my funds, go to my website at europac.com. You see the URL is above my shoulder and there's a page on there on the website for the, the funds. You can learn about, there's five funds. There's a value fund, the income dividend pairs fund, the emerging market fund, the gold fund and a, and a global bond fund. So I have five funds. You can buy them directly on my website. If you don't have a brokerage account, you can just you know go right on the website and, and buy the funds. Um, if you have an account at Schwab, Fidelity, you know, you know any of these big discount brokers, it's on the platform. You can just buy it in your, your account. You can also talk to the representatives at your Pacific Asset Management and they can help you buy the funds. We actually have a wrap program where you can set up an account with us and we'll manage your portfolio of my funds. So we'll help you, you know, kind of tweak the portfolio. When should you have more in gold? When should you have more in emerging markets? When should you have some bonds? So, you know, we'll, we'll manage it. And then if you have a, a larger amount of money, we do have separately managed accounts where we'll manage your portfolio where you kind of have your own fund. You don't share it with anybody else. It's your own account where you see each individual stock that you own and you see every trade in your own account. When you're in a mutual fund, you don't really know what's going on right. behind the scenes. You just, you're just a shareholder in this pooled enterprise. But if we manage your own separate account, then you own that exclusively. Uh, the stocks are in there and, and you see every transaction uh, that we make. And, 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 and you're not beholden to the markets. Because see, when, when we own a mutual fund, let's say the markets are crashing. And for some reason, we have a lot of investors who panic and they go, like, ah, I want my money. We may have to sell some stocks at a low price in order to get that money. Right mm. Now, we always maintain a little cash just in case we have a lot of redemptions. On the other hand, let's say the markets really run up and all of a sudden there's a big spike and, and the public gets real excited and they, and they, and they want to buy the fund and, and, and cash rushes in, right? Well, now we have to put it to work. Well, we're putting it to work at a spike. Now, this is a problem right. that, that all mutual funds have, right? The public wants to buy high and sell low. And so it creates a problem. And so it could undermine the returns relative to your own account where you own it. And if you, as long as you don't panic, you just ride it all out, right? You don't sell when prices go down. You don't buy more when prices go up. In fact, what my brokers try to get the clients to do is when prices go down, we get on the phone, say, hey, why don't you buy some more? It's a good time to buy, right? Mm -hmm. We just got to, we, we're on sale, right? So we try to encourage people to buy into the dips, but a lot of people's emotion has them doing the opposite. So it, yeah. if, if you can have your own separately managed account, in theory, over time, you should do better than, than the funds. But- if you don't have enough money for that, you know, you got five grand, 10 grand. Well, you know, I can't, you know, I can't do, I can't do a separately managed account. So you got to do the funds. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 and the, the performance, you know, will be similar. It's not like it's going to be way out of whack, you know, because as the funds get bigger and bigger, the inflows and outflows become smaller and smaller. Right. And it's not like the percentage. You know, 50, right. Yeah. I mean, if 1% of the people panic, I mean, it's not going to make that big a difference, you know, on the performance you know, or yeah, 1%. And the funds are going to get bigger as more people discover them. You know, they really, this guy Schiff knows what he's doing. He's been right all along. Let, let, me, let, me, let me give him some money to manage. 
Yeah. Uh, and yeah. so the funds will get bigger because if you look at the size of the funds, I mean, my funds are by far the smallest. You got these billion dollar funds and I'm kicking their butts. Right. And I've only got like 100 million in a fund, you know, and, and I'm killing these funds that have five billion. Yeah. Well, that's uh, I, I can't encourage people to check it out uh, enough and check out your podcast. I know I'm an avid listener and Peter can't wait to see it. Rebel Capitals live, my friend. We're going to have a lot of fun and enjoy the rest of your day. I appreciate the time. All right. Take care, my friend. I'll see you soon.